Season 6 of Let's Talk About Sects is proudly presented by Audio-Technica, who are a huge supporter of Australian creators and whose equipment is a big reason why the show sounds great. Each episode this season, we're giving away a pair of ATH SQ1TW wireless earbuds to a listener. Head to www.ltaspod.com slash win to enter. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thomas Parsons joined the 12 Tribes community in Hiddenite, North Carolina, in April 2019 and left in November 2021. With Hiddenite being the unofficial headquarters of the organisation, he had direct contact with a number of senior leaders of the tribes. Following last week's live episode release, I wanted to share this conversation with Thomas that gives an interesting insight into some of the more recent developments in the communities, as well as a more recent personal experience of the tribes. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also discusses drug addiction. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Thomas Parsons became familiar with the Twelve Tribes from living near their Hiddenite community in North Carolina. In his late thirties, he was at a difficult point in his life, suffering from depression and at a bit of a crossroads in his relationship with his father. His mother originally told him he should check out the Yellow Deli Cafe, and when he went there he liked what he saw. He was always religious, and felt that this community would give him the opportunity to truly embrace a way of life that represented biblical teachings. I'm going to drop you into our interview now with a small note that the recording had a couple of issues. Sometimes interviewees don't have access to the technology I like to use for audio recording and I never want to make it a burden, but I'm sure you'll be interested in what Thomas had to share. I was always fascinated with uh, religions and different beliefs and all that stuff. I've always been a kind of a student in that area and a student of history. And uh, so I was like, well, this is fascinating. And then I happened to met a guy from Australia who was called uh, Kashab. And, you know, they give everybody Hebrew names, Kashab. And me and him hit it off like magic or something. Me and him got along great. And I come back a couple more times and he invited me to Friday night. And so I went to the Friday night and it was very pleasant. Mm-hmm. It was very nice. And I was fascinated with them. 
And everything they were saying was just like, wow, yeah, this is like the way the church should be. And I was, oh, man. And uh, all the children were very respectful, and it was really nice. And so I, I started coming around. And that was uh, January 2019. And I just started coming back more. He even took my daughter back on Friday nights. And uh, they started talking to me about, you know, hey, why don't you come stay a weekend with us? And I was like, okay. But at this point in time in my life, I was, that depression I was going through is causing problems. Mm-hmm. And me and my dad and his business were butting heads a lot pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And needless to say, I'll take responsibility for my actions. You know, I could handled a lot of the situations better. I have a wonderful parents, so nothing against them. And so I, I actually started showing up on Saturdays, getting to know the people, and they were all like, wow, this is actually a local who's gonna come join. This is gonna open the floodgates. They mm-hmm. weren't telling me that stuff at the time. They told me about it later, okay. and they were praying mm-hmm. for me all the time to come. And then it was about a week before I was baptized. That would actually be wait right before Passover for them. I had a big falling out with my father at the time in the business and like I'm done. I am done with working with the you know general public. I'm done with this. I need a, I need a different change in life. And so I don't I guess I just fell into the trap and so I showed up there. <laughs> and I was like, "Hey, can I come move in?" They're like, "Absolutely." And I was baptized a week later. I didn't even know who Gene Spriggs really was then. I didn't even know. I heard it was started by some guy, and him and his wife started a Bible study, and then all these people say, hey, and then it just grew from there. I didn't even have a concept of who he was at that time. Yeah, interesting. So that kind of covered my my next question, which was kind of what was it about their way of life that appealed to you? But did you have anything else to say about that, what was appealing to you at the time? Well, I always, I liked it because what I, what I saw was just kind of like, you know, you get love bombed. Mm. And it was like, here you, you're getting drawn in because it seems like people actually care about you and people actually want you and you feel needed and you feel like you can actually make a difference in the world. Mm. And I always had that drive in me. I always did volunteer work. I did volunteer fire departments, helped out and not homeless shows, but donated stuff. And even when I was little, my mom had us working at soup kitchens, helping out the poor. And I always had a kind of that spot in me that's always desired to run away to Africa and do charity work or Mm. some third world country. Always something in me just always, I find pleasure in that. And so you said you'd never even heard of Gene Spriggs in those early days, but uh, you mm-hmm. did you did come to meet Gene Spriggs, and I guess to understand uh, oh yeah his role in the in the whole thing. What were your impressions of Gene Spriggs? Well, when I first met Gene, you know, I just don't like calling him that. Mm-hmm. I just like calling him Gene. My first impression of him was I was actually working in the deli, okay, mm-hmm. and I he was staying in Pine Island. Yeah, Pine Island. That's Florida, just west of uh, Fort Myers. They have a mango grove there. And uh, he was just staying there during the winter months. So he pulls into the deli right when he gets there. He drives out from Florida, pulls into the Yellow Deli in Hidnight, North Carolina, and he gets out of the car. And he's like, he walked up and just gives me the biggest hug and said, I've heard of you. And I was like, well, I've heard of you, sir. Your reputation precedes you. And that's how we met and uh he was really nice at first and 
you know, actually the first couple months dealing with him and stuff like that, he was actually a really nice guy. I didn't really, I was just so working so much in the deli, like mm-hmm. constantly and just being so what you call shepherd all the time. That was like the first summer was really nice. But like I said, I was really shepherd and my intel at that time was very close watched. So I didn't didn't know anything until shortly later. (laughs) Sure, sure. So you would say at the time you were only getting a very surface level impression of what was really going on. Yeah, I I mean, I could see like some of the people coming in there. My impression of Gene at that time was very positive. Sure. And uh, but I could see like some of the people I was working with because Hiddenite is also what they call, you know, uh, the School of the Prophets, the training center. They don't like to call it this, but it is also the uh, their capital. Mm-hmm. It's the Apostolic Center. That's where all the big dogs, that's where uh, everybody's favorite Australian cult person, Noon, would come to, mm-hmm. and another guy named Israel from there. Mm-hmm. They would make trips back and forth, and they would get whatever they were told to do or teachings or whatever. And you, I would have the big dogs coming in. Also... A lot of in the United States and in Canada, because our borders are very easy to cross between mm-hmm. our two countries. And um, you would see like a lot of times communities would send like their troublemakers there hoping to get it right. So I kept encountering some people that I would consider mentally unstable. Right. <laughs> some of these guys you could tell have done way too many drugs. Mm-hmm. And that was a big problem, too. Well, I suppose because some of what I've read is that some of the recruiting of new members came from like following uh, bands on tour in the in mm-hmm. the bus, and you well, know, Grateful Dead. Yeah, yes. Grateful Dead, and uh, there's quite a few members there that came in from the Grateful Dead, and the uh, yeah, they would take around the Peacemaker tour bus. Yeah, and so I I had read that they were you know helping people come down from bad acid trips and things. So I guess it's not entirely surprising that you might get some people who had some drug issues in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you can only do so many drugs, especially the hard stuff. Then you hit that off switch, as I call it. And I don't know how this is in other parts of the world, but in the United States, our drug drug epidemic is out of control. Yeah. It's horrible with our meth and fentanyl and heroin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It is not like, I mean, it is totally out of control. And the problem with that is when these people do it for long periods of time, they never come back to reality. Yeah, yeah. Their brains are just mush. And so you put them into a very stressful area. You know, you're working from like, oh, you could go in, let's say the men hall start at 7, so we'd eat about 9 o'clock, and you might work till 11 o'clock that night. Mm. And then on top of that, you're constantly given mate. That's a kind of very strong form of coffee. It's not coffee, but it's a, a lot stronger. And you're constantly given that. So you got them all wired up on that. Your diets are not really that good because you're never really given a lot of food. You're always hungry. Mm. Even though they have in the delis, there's plenty of it. And we we're all the time sneaking, stealing food all the time. All of us were. And, uh, but when you would sit down and eat, it was very poor food. And so you mix that in with that mentally unstable, mm. high stressful area, exhausted, called disaster. 
Yeah. And I think a lot of people are quite surprised to learn that the diet for people, for many people within the tribes is actually not particularly good because the outward facing parts of the tribes, the parts that the general public interacts with are the the wonderful mm. food served in the delis and the bakeries and that kind of thing. So it can be pretty shocking to discover that that's not the same as what's being experienced by those on the inside? Like, why do you think that it was that you would have been getting not enough food while you were in there? Money on one way. See, in the United States, we have, uh, I don't know, do you have Costco over there? We do. Okay. (laughs) Only quite recently, but it has, it has traveled over here. Okay, we have Costco here. There's uh, two Costco's within an hour drive of Hidnight. And what would happen is Costco is very good at donating their extra products, like their fruits and vegetables and stuff to farms, like the ones you know they put on the shelf, but it's a day or two old, they can't sell it. So they'll like package it up for you. And they would, we would take the box truck, we had a box truck there, and we would grab like tons of pallets because at the time, Costco believed like they were farm communities. They were portraying themselves as that because mm-hmm. they were part of the Wolfer program and that kind of stuff. The Hidden Night was in Asheville, which is about an hour from me, is a, a farm, well, was a farm community, so it's not anymore. And uh, so Costco was, you know, they were giving it to all these farms and stuff like that. So they thought we were feeding it to the animals. No, we bring the box truck back, had these big palletfuls of vegetables. There you go. And we'd go through it and quit you know what they consider clean and unclean no nothing like fungus no mushrooms or stuff like that but like the apples the oranges and sometimes it was pretty good food actually and so that's how they did it and then once or twice about once a week somebody to make a run to costco down there actually and buy like some chickens and some meats and stuff like that but it was never much meat and then the deli was always supplied by in the united states by boar's head uh which is a really top of the line uh, meat company and fresh uh, fresh points and U.S. foods. So that was all there and none of that stuff was organic. Mm. But yeah, that's that's a bull-faced lie when they say they sell organic stuff. That's a bull-faced lie. Yeah, it might be like 5%, 10% from like Kansas where they do have like a farm and they do grow spelt there. And then you mix like a small, tiny percentage of it. And they say, oh, it's organic. No, it's not. <laughs> you're getting mm. your flour from, you're getting spelled, but you're not buying it from your farms. You're buying it from farms in Canada, which ain't part of the 12 tribes. But they position it as though it is all from the farms of the 12 tribes. Yeah, yeah. So I say we were eating organic and stuff like that. We never did. Mm. I mean, the farms... We had a couple far, like couple gardens there, a small one, and then they built a bigger one, but it was never maintained. So as you can see, like here we are just like eating more or less leftover foods that the grocery stores can't sell anymore and very small meats and unfortunately lots and lots of breads. So, cause that's, they're constantly making bread. Mm-hmm. So for the markets and if they can't sell it, they're giving it to us. So that's okay, but if you're constantly eating bread amount, you know, stuff like that, you, you create health problems. There's actually a couple of incidences where people became diabetic inside the community. I know of two people oh. in head night, yeah, that became full-blown diabetics. Yeah, right. And just because yeah, the so. diet is poor. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and everybody's chemistry is different. Of course. You're, yeah. So, but they kind of put everybody like one, and so it created some health problems. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could tell me a bit about the uh, the attitude of the tribes towards education for the young people. Okay, uh, absolutely. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is something that needs to be brought up. When I first joined, I thought the children, I was like, wow, these children are going to be the smartest kids in the world. Wrong. Uh, okay. <laughs> because they didn't have televisions. You know, you don't have radio. You don't have access. And I was like, whoa, wow, all the distractions in the world, they should be smart. They do have some schooling. They start out at a very young age. It's for like toddlers and stuff like that. They call it pre-training. And that's actually decent where they basically teach them their numbers and ABCs and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Then they move up to uh, uh, the training. And then there's different levels of that. But it only lasts to like they're 12 or 13 years old. And But they don't really focus on anything other than like basic math. And even in one of Gene's teachings, he taught you really only need an eighth grade education. So, like, you're taught, you know, adding, subtracting, multiplication, division, that's it. And uh, how to read and write on the eighth eighth grade level, which you can technically survive off that. And that's pretty much it. As in history goes, it's their version of history, and it's very weird. Mm -hmm. That's where I started, like, Finding out that it was very different. Like they do a lot of Bible history, which is fine in the history of Israel, but their version of it. And it's like, wow, that's crazy. And then as they grow older, they're more indoctrinated into the teachings. Mm-hmm. And the teachings, okay, they say they go by the Bible, but the teachings will help you guide through the Bible. You're not supposed to read the Bible just straight through like you're really supposed to. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to uh, have Gene's teachings to help you guide through so you can understand it. And so they're taught that a lot. They do have, I think, twice a week when I was there, they do have, oh, I can't remember the name of what it's called, but they would have a person come in there that would teach them teachings that they need to know to survive in the community. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but that was pretty much it. They only went to school for like, Maybe two, maybe three or four hours a day, if that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, if they didn't have a teacher, they you would think Hidnight being the capital that we would have all this stuff. But sometimes the teachers, things come up and they go weeks without schooling. Yeah, right. Yeah, and then you try to tell these kids like anything about society or like American, how the United States government works or even like – in their home countries like Australia or Europe, how the government, they have the slightest clue. They don't even know how the U.S., like, how, like, our local governments here work mm-hmm. or anything. It's just like, they think, like, the president is king. I'm like, no, he's not. There's three branches of our government. <laughs> I'm trying to explain that to him. And actually, speaking of the government, I also uh, wondered if you could tell me from what you experienced what the attitude of the, the leaders of the tribes towards the government was. Well, okay, yeah. So for the most part, it depends. Okay, when Trump was president, when I was there and Trump became and Trump was president, they really loved Trump. They say they don't, but they actually loved him. They thought he was the greatest thing on the planet. Uh, I'm not trying to get in politics here. And uh, <laughs> oh yeah, 
you know, we don't want to get down American real politics. Please, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) But then when Biden became president, it was all like, oh, he's going to destroy us. And I was like, oh, my God, no. But their concept of the government is they don't like the government being involved in their lives. They still feel like it's still controlled by the devil. Everybody's out to get them there. When it comes to, in the United States, you have to prove that you're educating to children. So one thing they do is when you're moving around and you move between states in the United States, you don't have to tell people. You know, we're very open borders between our states here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a lot of times I just didn't never report the child was even there. So, because they were always afraid that uh, there would be another island pond raid. Mm-hmm or another Germany incident. Mm -hmm. And we're always taught to be friendly to our local law enforcement and our governments, but never talk to them too much. Sure, sure. So, and it was always kind of like, we had to be really careful. Like if there was a car driving around, they thought might be police or an investigator or some government official, they immediately grab the kids and take them inside. So was there always a fear of them, Mm -hmm. a respect for it, Depends on if it was, if there was a conservative party in the country or if there's a conservative party in your local government, there'd be more respect for them. Yeah, interesting. And you mentioned uh, in terms of, you know, teachings from the Bible that you were supposed to use Gene Spriggs teachings to kind of guide you through the Bible. But I just wondered, was your impression that Gene Spriggs interpretations through his teachings were considered to be at or above the same level as the Bible itself? Yes, Gene's, okay, so as you go, as you would read Gene's teachings, and he would go through, oh, he would say something, then he would say, look up this verse, and then you would look up the verse, and then, okay, you go to the, the book, and, you know, go to the Bible, and it's got this book, whatever book it was, and the chapter and the verse, and he read it, and he would explain what it means, and he would jump to another book, Something, you know, you could any oh, religions do this all the time. You could do this on uh, Bible Gateway on your telephone and just say a word and it'll jump around different where it says in the Bible. And it's like, oh, okay, this means this, this means this. And so you could come out with something totally different than what it actually says. That's how he, like slavery, for example. I know that's a big issue that keeps getting brought up where they would talk about slavery and how it was. It was a justable thing and how the descendants of Ham, that's mm. Noah's son that looked upon his father, were all cursed. Well, if you twist the scriptures around, you can say that. But if you actually read it and not follow the teachings, you actually find out what it actually says. And it says nothing like that. And they were notoriously known for doing that. Like Gene would take those scriptures and twist it to fit whatever logic he wanted to present. Sure. Yeah, especially authority teaching. That's a big one. Authority and obedience teachings where they would put like your shepherd above you is your spokesman. Basically, he's the one that's appointed by God to tell you what to do. So if he says it, you got to do it regardless. And that's where a lot of people come in with a a lot of health problems and the shepherds don't really care because they're too focused on moving up the chain of command or having an easier life. And that's where you get a lot of problems. With, with this shepherded situation, is, is this like each each new member gets uh, assigned mm-hmm. one specific shepherd? Well, for me, I was assigned, well, at first I was assigned uh, to one shepherd who was in charge 
uh, he was part of the three chord uh a three chord in a community all communities in the 12 tribes most of them unless they're really small uh hidden night and a lot of ones and i think even the ones in australia are controlled by uh, a council and uh, it's three people it's supposed to be three people who are married uh, pretty you know high up and respected and uh they're supposed to control. I was actually shepherded by one of them. His name was Alod. Really nice guy, actually. Me and him got along really well. Okay. Uh, he actually cared. He was one of the, there's a lot of people in there actually care about each other. He seemed mm-hmm. like he did, but he got moved to a different place. Yeah. And so he, yeah, he helped me out a lot. I probably would have left like within the first couple of months if it wasn't for him. Yeah, right. And, and uh, he was really nice. He even let me a couple of times get a car like i was only in the group like two months get a car go see my grandmother on her birthday and visit my grandparents and stuff like that yeah right. i mean he was really nice and but yeah that's how it runs and then after that you know then they'll just sign you like a somewhat like a, a senior brother like you might be working in the deli so the manager would be your shepherd mm-hmm and are your work helping out the baker the baker would be your shepherd and they would have absolute control of your life i'm serious like i didn't realize how much it was fine when you had a good one but when you had someone who's power hungry or mentally unstable i mean they'd get so far and like lay out your clothes what you had to wear i had one that would go through my drawers that didn't go over well oh gosh and yeah it could get pretty bad would like all the other members also have shepherds and would those shepherds have their own shepherds? Was it kind of going upwards or was it not? Uh, yeah, it's like a pyramid. Yeah. It's a pyramid scheme. So, okay. Uh, first and foremost at the top, you would have Gene Spriggs. Mm-hmm. He was at the top of the pyramid. Uh, throw Marsha right in next to him, his wife mm-hmm. was well, widow now. And then underneath him, you, he was the highest authority. There was, he had no shepherd. His shepherd, they said, was God. And then underneath him, you would have the Apostle uh, Council, which was consisted of three highly respected uh, individuals inside the, uh, inside the 12 tribes. Um, Nahaliel and Sharesh or Sharef, but the one from Yehuda, and uh, Hanuk from Europe, travel of Lviv. And those three men were like, right underneath your naked high hammock. And then underneath them, you would have your tribal council, which is another, each tribe, it consisted of three individuals. Um, that's where Noon was for Australia, which is Asher and another man, Israel. Noon's, Noon is no longer part of the, I don't even think Noon's in Australia anymore. So you had those, and then you had your three in charge of the community and then you see, then you go down and you have the voice from behind. That's like deacons. They don't call it, like to use deacons because it's too Christian, but deacons, advisories, your managers. And then you get your low lowlifes, like me, you're, I'm not lowlifes, but your <laughs> low ones like me <laughs> at the bottom of the totem pole. And all these guys are our shepherds. Yeah. But as you progress up, you don't have so much authority over you because you are authority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is totally contradicted what's, well, I was told at the beginning, I thought it was like a circle. You know, everybody, you know, everybody's one, mm-hmm. kind of like a, a sphere or something, not like a pyramid scheme. Yeah, definitely the way it portrays itself to the outside is that everyone is equal, right? Yeah, that's what happens when you point kings and mm-hmm. rollers over you. That's what First Samuel, 
warns people not to do that, but <laughs> nobody ever wants to listen. <laughs> and you, you touched on this already when you were talking about uh, working in the deli, but could you tell me a bit more about the amount of work that you saw expected of members? Okay, yeah. So when you go inside of a yellow deli, you look at it and, you know, you see all these people. You get people behind a sandwich bar. You got your waiters, waitresses, your boss boy, and you don't really see the people in the back. You know, your dishwasher and stuff, which unfortunately you'll see that's where they the children go to a lot of times. And, mm-hmm. yes, there are children as young as 12. It only goes, like, really, really young, but, like, 12 up working in the delis. But you don't see them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we respected to work. Like I would go in, when I first started, I would go in from probably eight till, oh, 11 mm-hmm. that night and one 30 minute break for lunch. That was it. Whoa. And I was always supposed to be working. And especially if you're in a sandwich bar and I'm telling you, I've seen people pass out. I collapsed one time in Chattanooga doing it. And from, but, from, you know, over, like, oh, from overwork, yeah, overwork. You're doing that much, and then you got to you go to bed. So let's say you get done at eleven. You worked eight a.m. to eleven p.m. You you get home. You know it's going to at least take you an hour. You take a shot. You get walk home, or depends on where you're at. If you're either going to take a car, so I would usually get done lay in bed about twelve. Then I would get then the shofar would blow at six, and that was time for preparation time. So oh, man, you just got maybe six hours of sleep if you're lucky. And, yeah, that's crazy. It's so intense. And, I like, I always feel like when I think about the the tribes, one of the things that sounds so appealing about it is sort of this rejection of kind of the capitalist world and everybody contributing according to their ability and and being provided for according to their need. It sort of feels like a setup where everyone's supporting each other. But the reality of it sounds so grueling that it's actually way more work than you'd expect be expected to do for a regular company. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you that would happen. And literally, like I saw people collapse. I collapsed once. As you can tell, you know, like I said earlier, that uh, you got people with neurological damage from major drug abuse and the hardcore stuff, and you put those in these situations, and oh, you get tired. You get sucked. Here's some more mate. Here's some more mate. Mm. Oh yeah. Can you imagine? You got attitudes flying all the time. People are snapping each other. Or you got somebody over here who's wanting to move up, and he's watching everything you do. And literally, I had people walking around with notebooks like well little notepads and they were literally write down every mistake you did why are they <laughs> writing down your mistakes because if i write you out and i'm showing that i'm vigilant see this is another teaching that gene talks a lot about too it's in the authority and obedience teaching and a couple others about how we have to be careful that outside influence and sin into our life and we have to put it down i quote violently now, I, I challenge that word violently because I said that could be misinterpreted very badly. He's not talking about getting, like, physical and hurting people, but, like, watching them very closely and make sure everybody's on the straight and narrow path so that you don't have these deviations from the path so you people will get drawn into it. 
You've got to remember, Gina actually has a degree in psychology. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and he also served in the U.S. military too, so he's got a lot of that military mindset too. Mm. Yeah, so true. Yeah, so that's so you got this. So if I start pointing, you know, your mistakes out, I'm drawing attention away from me, and I'm drawing it towards you. So I look better, especially if I'm one of these. If I got the brains how to do it, I can manipulate you to make a mistake and then rat you out. And then I can say, I was just worried about my brother or sister. I, I'm really worried about them. They won't focus on me. They'll focus on you. And then I'm the guy who's trying to actually save you, even though I put you in the trap. Yeah. And so that's <laughs> creating this kind of atmosphere of... Kill or be killed. Yeah. And sort of distrust and everyone's kind of looking at you all the time and you're... Yeah, you don't really have friends there. I mean, you're fortunate that some people do. I would say I made one at the very end. He's still there, and he'll probably be there today. He dies in South America. But you don't make many friends there. Right. <laughs> Even husbands and wives uh, could be very untrustworthy toward each other, especially if they're married inside the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And children especially. You know, you can see it even starting with the little children. They'll start, like, the older ones will start getting the little younger ones in trouble and the older ones are getting away with stuff and then the, the little ones grow up and then they see how to do it you see how it keeps going yeah absolutely yeah and that's yeah. creating that environment it seems almost intentional uh, yeah i wouldn't say gene intentionally created it but i would say he that's what he did correct <laughs> whether yeah whether or not it was intentional that was the result yeah a narcissist that's what happens uh-huh uh-huh. And you mentioned the use of mate a couple of times, uh, but I think when we spoke earlier, you also, you also told me a little about uh, what the beliefs were around some of the healing properties of mate. I just wondered if you could share that. Okay. All right. Mate. Uh, herbal mate is a drink. Is a, it's actually grown from trees. It's from South America, I believe. Argentina. And Gene, I guess when he was going down there, when they were starting to South American tribes, he finds this drink down there and said, oh, this is going to be our drink. And so the South American community started producing mate. But uh, the concept behind mate is, the belief of it is that, oh, it was, our father gave this to us and it's better than coffee and it's like a natural stimulant and it's really good for you. It helps brain function. It, it has even been known to cure cancer. Mm-hmm. Okay, all this is lies. And, you know, oh, it's really great for you, and it'll help long life, and yeah, right? <laughs> it's basically a different form of caffeine. Uh, but, yeah, they're very, they put it in everything. A couple of the podcasts I'd like to bring up here is there's one podcast that talks about an FBI report in Hidden Night that they said they were putting all these drugs and stuff in the food, and that wasn't drugs. That was actually mate. Mm-hmm. They put mate in everything because it's a stimulant. Mm-hmm. It's, very strong ca- it's a very strong form of caffeine, and it will keep you going unless you build up a higher immune system to it, and then you got to drink more and more of it. But mate can actually cause obesity, heart problems, and anxiety, and long-term exposure of it can be is pretty addictive, actually. So that's the thing, but you know they treat it as like godsend, and this is the greatest drink on the planet, and it's coffee's evil, even though they serve coffee in the delis, but if you're in the communities, you do not drink coffee. And so that's basically what it is, to keep you working those long hours, 
it basically created a belief system like that that i would drink this oh it's going to help me with cancer it's going to build up my immune system it's going to build up this blah 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 and basically it's just a lie because it just keeps you going constantly but when you crash you crash hard all right yeah well and that i mean i guess you've sort of mentioned that already in terms of people who might have dependencies and that kind of thing but is there anything mm-hmm. else that you feel is dangerous about the way that the tribes operate well you know the medical thing definitely i i wish they would take care of the people better i when i was in the community i actually the last year i was there i actually saw a woman she was dancing she was an older woman and she wouldn't tell me you know come and find out she had a lot of health problems she was we we're in the gathering we were dancing she went to the bathroom boom fell over dead right there sweetest woman you ever met my mother and her got along great and she was such a sweet person uh this is after the last year this is a couple months before i left actually actually helped make her coffin too helped make jean's coffin and her coffin and so she um all she needed to do was just go get checked out but because of this belief like you got to do what your shepherd tells you blah 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 and her shepherd happened to be marcia and she was actually marcia's personal tailor because marcia had her own all her clothes you know all the women's clothes are handmade mm-hmm. most of them and what a lot of people don't know is in hidden night they have uh the print shop where they make all their print stuff you know all their teachings and printed out all their propaganda stuff and also connected with that building is a sewing department and she was like you would walk in there and i I was in there quite a lot actually toward the end and i remember walking in there and i was like first time i was like oh see all these different clothes and it's all for women's clothes because guys you know we can go to our stores and buy stuff women you got to be submissive so we got to make your stuff and uh, (laughs) so i looked and there's like this it's about 10 by 5 section of shelves and it was all special like clothes like silks from india imported from all over the world that was marcia's selection and she would have these women like this woman make her personal clothes out of these expensive fabrics all the other women got you know cheap stuff from mm-hmm. walmart big lock stuff like that you know or hand-me-down clothes and but you know she just she was too afraid to say i need to go to the hospital or anything because oh you're sick well if you're sick it must be because of sin mm. And so she just fell over dead, oh, literally. That's really tragic. Yeah, yeah she was a, such a sweet woman, too. But, you know, and it's also like, I, I saw another example of a man who, another guy I knew, and uh, he was an older man. He came in probably when he was 50 or so, but he had back problems. He'd been there like 10, 15 years, and his back went out. He laid pretty much in his room on the floor for like a week before they would do anything. Gosh. But yet, another guy who's way up on the ladder needs a medical treatment. For example, he has some prostate issues. So what do they do? They fly him out to uh, Morningstar Ranch, Southern California, and then he goes to Tijuana, Mexico, to get treatment. It's crazy. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the hierarchy system, the pyramid scheme. Yeah. Oligarchy system. Yeah, but you got the lower guys down here who need a new pair of shoes 
well, where I was at, we didn't have that kind of problem. We always had clothes were abundant. But you go to some of these other smaller communities, you need a new pair of shoes. They got a bag if they can get it. And it's really sad because it's, it's not it's not the way it's supposed to be. Everybody's supposed to take care of each other. Mm, depends on your position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that actually leads into one of my other questions I had, which was around whether you saw other ways that the leaders operated that didn't line up with what they were teaching and saying to outsiders about how they lived. And I think yeah. you mentioned something earlier about Pine Island, for instance. Oh, yes, Pine Island. Okay, Pine Island is in Florida on the Gulf Coast of, Mexi- uh, on the Gulf Coast of Mexico. It's right just west of Fort Myers, just south of Tampa. And they have a mango grove there. It is, I actually spent uh, a month there. I actually loved it. It was like working on a park. Other than all the alligators and wild boar and the black panthers running around. That's a little scary. And I was, you know, I was down there, but I noticed like the leader, I was doing all this work, playing this, how many, how many acres was that? 20, 30 acres, mango grove, working. And the leader, Oshua, Rosso was in charge of it all down there because it's very small. There's only like 10 of us. He was gone all the time. Come to find out, he's going out, eating at restaurants, meeting friends. You know, it's like, what, dude, me and this other guy are basically doing all the work and you're just running around doing whatever you want, taking your family to the beach, stuff like that. Well, come to find out when I was down there, you know, Gene would go down there. On this, he liked spending the summer, no, I'm sorry, the winter months down there because Florida, you know, it's nice in the wintertime. And come to find out, his wife, she's like, yeah, I asked her, I said, so where did Gene and Masha say, oh, they stayed in their house, it's about a mile from us north. I'm like, what? Oh, yes, yeah. oh, I loved it. I We brought them food, we cleaned their houses, He, you know, he comes to the teachings when he is able to. Yeah, it was a mile north of us in his own house at the waterfront and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And I actually saw the house because Hoshua's father uh, had some major health problems. And because see, they don't really take care of their properties like they claim they do. A lot of these properties are covered in mold and mildew. Oh. And the air conditioning went out in the house there. And his father uh, is a really wonderful man, but he's very old. He actually has only one arm. And his mother, they were having some major health problems. The air conditioning went out. And, and if you're in, you know, that part of the United States and Florida, you're talking about 110 degrees temperatures here, Fahrenheit. Mm. I don't know what that is, Celsius. And it's very, very hot. And so they were kind of freaking out. I was like, oh, maybe we can get a hold of this house that Gene stayed at. Come to, you know, kind of find out the tribes didn't own the house. He was just renting it from a buddy of his from Chattanooga. Uh. Yeah, yeah. And I would literally walk up walk to the northern part of the island, only a mile away on the Sabbath, Saturdays, and I had a nice dock, and it was really pretty. I could see dolphins, you know, stingrays, crystal clear water. Oh, it's beautiful. I'd love to go back, actually. Not to the community, but to the island. <laughs> and uh, they had a fish camp there, and I would take my water bottle. You got to drink lots of water there. And uh, I walked over to the fish camp, and a woman ahead of my pine is called Gathering Groves, is the name of the community there. Had my community hat on and uh, just a regular t-shirt some shorts 
And uh, she said, oh, you're from Catherine Grant. Oh, how's Jean and Marsha doing? I'm like, oh, they're fine. I said, I love to serve them. They're the best people I ever served. She was just bragging on how great they were serving. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. This is a fried fish camp. We're like told not to eat at these places, period. Mm-hmm. And here they are because they live like, what, like two, three houses from it. And here they are getting their lunches and stuff from this place after we're told not to. Right. So, Interesting. <laughs> well, and so for people who might not be aware, the, the impression that was given to outsiders about how, you know, Jean would live was that it was the same as everybody else, that Jean also lived in these uh, community properties amongst the, the people also did the same types of work and, and that everybody contributed in, in similar ways to the communities, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. In the early days, this is before I was got there, you had to talk to some people that were in the early, early days. Uh, Gina actually lived like everybody else. Sure. I don't know when this happened. I think in the 90s, maybe in the late 90s or 2000, that's when he started getting his own place. Because mm-hmm. I know quite a few people said, oh, he's, our rooms were right next to his. And like he would come and wash dishes in the deli. Like, but as he got older, now Marsha, on the other hand, you, know, you can ask me one of them. Marsha never lifted a finger to do work, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never saw her once. And she, I talked to people when I was in there from like the very beginnings, like the first two original people that moved in with them, you know, they'll tell you, you know, Marsha never lifted a finger to do anything. What, what were your impressions of Marsha as a person? <sighs> Marsha, when I first met her with Gene, I just thought, you know, Gene, when I met him, he was getting dementia going on. Mm. And his mind was slipping pretty fast. So I just thought she was just a good wife when I first met her, taking care of her husband. Uh, I didn't really see the fangs coming out until after Gene died. And that's when she sorted to her power. That's when I saw it coming out. Up to that point, she was she was nice. I got along with her great, really nice. But after Jean died, she let it be known she was in charge. She let it be known hardcore. Like, you know, it's mentioned, you know, uh, you heard about he had a son, Tyrone. Yeah. Okay. So, like, all right. When I first noticed Marsha taking power was, okay, when Jean died, you know, I, w- I was actually in Plymouth when he came down with COVID at the time. I was sent to Plymouth for two and a half months to... Uh, Co-builder, Big Deli in, at Plymouth, right, literally behind Plymouth Rock. And that was really nice. I loved it there. And then we found out uh, Gene got uh, COVID. And the Hidden Night community got, it was coming down with really bad COVID. And me, I ha- I actually it got COVID while I was in Plymouth, but mine was, my symptoms were very mild. I mean, I literally, like, was working, helped bedding it. So, guys, I'm feeling horrible. They sent me home. I slept pretty much all day and went back to work the next day. But that was my choice. I was, I was fine. Sure. So we got, I got sent back because I was told, you know, oh, you're already immune from COVID. You already had it. And the deli in Hidden Night is just overwhelmed. Everybody's getting COVID. It's really bad. And Gene, you know, they, we were all praying because we heard Gene, you know, he got really bad sick. And they were saying he got COVID at the time. Mm. And they, it was common knowledge. And so I got sent back. I got I caught a plane out of Boston and flew to Charlotte, North Carolina. I got picked up, 
And then he, uh, like a week later, he died. Right. Or like a week or two later, he died. Mm-hmm. And so me and another uh, individual and a, a younger fellow, we actually helped make his coffin. Mm-hmm. I actually tested his coffin before because me and him were close to the same size. And so I actually ended up testing his coffin before he did. That's creepy. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you're laying there. It's like, okay. Here you go. We're going to put this over top. And I was like, oh, man, just don't nail it shut, please. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. So like, yeah, I laid it his coffin before he did. <laughs> <laughs> and then they retrieved his body from the morgue. And then they drove it to Pulaski, Tennessee, which is about six, seven hours from midnight. And buried it. But they had a big, uh, I was not invited to that. Only Marsha, she handpicked the people who were going to go there were quite a few from midnight and then a bunch of the big leaders the mm-hmm. ones that could make it mm-hmm. from the united states came mm-hmm. and that's when tyrone came because uh one of the senior members actually uh got a hold of tyrone and said you know tell him what happened and tyrone came to the funeral you know it's his father they're mm-hmm. burying his father let the man come and he went to the funeral and i remember marcia when she came back She's telling us all about the funeral, how like, oh, they, we could feel the aura of Gene passing, unique, you know, feel mm-hmm. his aura passing through all these people and how his spirit will live on within these people. And he's with our father and our master, Yahshua, and all this blah, blah, blah. And, um, and it's like, and then she goes on a little bit and she goes, yeah, even Tyrone came. And she got like really serious. And it's like, yeah, I didn't tell him. I said, and she mentioned the name of the person that told him. I said, yeah, he such and such told him to come. And apparently, Tyrone went over to Marsha, his stepmother. Okay, and said, no, this is Marsha. Says that oh, he came over to me and said, oh, you have wonderful people. You know, you have nothing to worry about. They're gonna take care of you if you need anything. You know, these people are wonderful. You know, expressing his feelings. He just watch his dad be buried you know and this is what literally she said of course they're gonna take care of me i have a family you know you might have his eyes and he might have helped produce you but you never were his son and you will never be regarded his son ever again Mm. and i was like and we're all sitting there in the men hall and start gathering and listening to this and it was just like whoa you just did what and you know everybody you know, no one's gonna question i'm sitting over there going oh my god and that's when i saw the fangs coming out well i mean fangs like her true person when i started seeing the true marsha was coming out like oh my god she's and she, a little bit later she goes i want it to be said right now tyrone is never to be mentioned as teen son ever again and i was just like oh my god Maybe I need to start thinking about what I just joined. <laughs> right, so me, that, that was just that was something that yeah. that had you thinking twice about it. Yeah, even to this day, it's still just like whoa. Mm. And yeah, then I got shipped to Chattanooga for about a month and a half. <laughs> right, because <laughs> I started asking questions. Why did she say that? Uh-huh. You know, we could give me a straight answer and it's like, you know, we need to get him out of here. <laughs> yeah, right. And I mean, that, yeah, that kind of leads into the question I had about what, you know, what was it that finally made you decide to leave the organization? Well, technically, I left once before uh-huh. when I was in Chattanooga. I mean, I, it was a very busy deli. 
very understaffed. And I literally was going to work from 11 a.m. till like 3 or 4 a.m. next morning. And that's where I actually collapsed at. Mm. And it got really bad. And one of the managers there turned out to be a total pervert and was chasing after some of the young girls. Mm. I mean, he's my age, okay? And he's chasing after like 18, 19, 16 year old girls. And me and him did not get along good. And one day me and him clashed really bad. And uh, he was never doing anything, just bossing me around. I was running a whole terrace sandwich bar by myself and for like hours. And I was lucky if I got like a 10 minute break at that day. Finally, you know, me and him butted heads and I told him, I said, I can't stay here. I said, I'm done, I am done. And they literally drove me to the bus station, put me on a bus and I took a Greyhound bus all the way back home. But I didn't, I, I was gone just the weekend. I came back to my parents' house and my mom and dad were, you know, you don't have to go back son. But you know, once I got some rest, and I started thinking of, I was like, I wasn't totally done yet. I was still believed that there was, that, you know, every, every religion, every group goes through different, I don't care what group you're at, every group goes through difficult times. Of course. And sometimes there's bad, sometimes there's good. And so I just thought maybe this is just another bad time. And I'm just, you know, I was exhausted, I was tired, and I just overreacted. And so the people in Hidden Night, that really nice guy I was telling you about, the reason, you know, the, my first uh, shepherd actually got a, in touch with me and is like, just come talk. I was like, you know what, I will. I'm going to come back. I'm just going to spend, you know, get some rest here. I need to see my daughter. And actually, mom and dad gave me some money and a car, and I went, went hiking with my daughter. <laughs> we had a blast. Got some ice cream. And then I went back to the community, and I was washed are rebaptized again within a couple of days and everything went back to normal. And actually they were, once the truth came out, what was going on in Chattanooga, I definitely wasn't welcome back there. And I made their senior leader look like garbage, but it did kind of expose some stuff that was going on and there was some changes and they were pretty much, they weren't hard on me on that one. They were actually more apologetic. Okay. So, but later, mm. later is uh, after Marsha started taking over more control, more control, that's when I started noticing, like, people just got a lot more hateful. You know, the pianos were all taken out. Everything was more control. Even my family there at the last couple of months, like, they didn't know my parents' service at the deli would not even allow them to be seated in the deli. What? I didn't find out that until I left. I was very upset when I found that one out. Why would that have happened? Marsha is just, there's, there's two personalities just not click very well. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Sure. So she never really cared much about my mom. They even had a whole entire men hall, like the last summer I was there about like how bad my mother is. Marsha brought this up. My mom came to visit one time and we were sitting there eating and Marsha and her group of girls, she always had like young girls always around her, her personal servants. Oh God. They were the ones that, yeah, they cleaned her house, made her food, did her everything for her. No, Marsha doesn't lift the finger, period. She always had a group of her servant girls. And they lived, okay, she has her own house, but it's like still on the property of the community at Hidnight. It's still part of the compound or whatever you want to call it. But it, it's like a, it's, it's like one, it's got its own kitchen. It's got a pretty big bedroom, it's two stories. 
and it's got a decent sized living room, of course, his own bathroom and all that stuff, and his own washing machines and dryers. And then they have um, the very far side of the house is blocked off, and then they have two extra bedrooms, and that's where they put like the younger girls. They called them Marsha's girl, uh, Hyamis girls. And that was her personal service. I'm raised like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, open the door for a lady. If I don't, I'm afraid my mom's going to come. I'm even 41 years old. If I see a woman, I cut her off going into the door and I don't hold that door. I'm looking behind my back. My mom's going to smack me in the back of the head. <laughs> you know, it's just how we're raised down here. Well, we're known for our sudden hospitality. Sure. So I remember like all of a sudden this new rule came out that if one of these young girls, you know, we're picking up these big cans, you know, you're picking up big boxes, stuff like this in the delis. You got these young girls out there. They're not as strong as, you know, they're not, some of them not that strong. Some of them are actually. And, but we weren't supposed to help them unless our shepherd told us to help them. So I would see a girl like trying to take trash out of the trash cans a little heavy for I'd go over here. I got it. Yeah. And they called me Obadja. And they go, Obadja, what are you doing? Who told you to help her? Oh, huh. uh, I just saw she needed a hand. I'm sorry. What a, well, maybe that wasn't our father's will. Gosh. Maybe it's our father's will that she has to get it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Our father's will is the fruit of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Right there in Galatians, read it. You know, love, kindness, joy, mm-hmm. all the patience, all that stuff. That's God's will. It's really nice. <laughs> and, but they would, because Marcia decreed that she didn't like the way the girls and the guys were flirting with each other. So she made it even more stricter. Mm-hmm. But I never saw I never really saw any of this, like, guys and girls sneaking off doing immoral things. No right. kissing, no nothing. She even had a friend of mine sent away. One of the head leader's daughters who was stationed in head night a lot of times, and so was that leader. His daughter was a little bit on the wild side. Her dad was a leader. She could pretty much get away with anything she wanted. And she had a major crush on this guy. He happened to be black. Mm-hmm. She happened to be white. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah, that's a no-no there, and um, in the communities. But he didn't never do anything. I mean, he was friendly and nice to her. I was around them both all the time. But because in the past he made a mistake when he was younger and like kissed a girl or something, got some major trouble for it, got caught, got some big trouble. Long time ago, before this happened, you know, kissed a girl or held her hand or something. I can't remember what he told me, but that was always the stain on him. Hmm. And so. This girl had a major crush on him. Her dad was worried about it. And next thing you know, the boy sent away because we got a brand new uh, fancy, fancy uh, pressure washer that you can, it was heated and everything, really expensive pressure washer. And we just got it, it got shipped up to us, brand spanking new. And somebody decided to run it with no oil in it. Ooh. See, when you buy these things, you get a pull, and it blew it up. Oh, no. It wasn't him. I know the boy who did it. And it was another boy who did it, but because he was black, Eric was in a little bit of trouble from a previous thing, and this girl liked him, and Marsha's freaking out. Oh, I know it's him. I know. So what happened? I sent the boy away, and he did nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you When you were seeing that kind of thing happening, was that influencing your yeah. decision about whether you were going to leave or yeah i started noticing that it was very political i started noticing stuff like this and my eyes started opening up and i remember when i first come to realization 
I went to my room and I broke down and I cried. Yeah. I really did. Right. I was so heartbroken. I, I was crying. I was praying. I couldn't believe it. And I finally just saw enough that it just finally broke me. And my decision to leave wasn't, they say it was mine, but I was more or less, by this time, I, uh, well, by this time I was pulled out of the deli actually. And I was actually working on the ground screw, which I real plucked at. And so I was doing a lot of landscaping, trying to clean up. Like I said, they never, they don't really take care of their properties at their houses. The delis look great. But like it's all the Disney World version of it. You go inside their houses; they're falling apart. They're because they don't take care of it. Mm-hmm. Because everybody's work, 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 and everybody's exhausted and tired and all jacked up on my titty. Common sense goes right out the window. Mm-hmm. And so our places, especially in this part of the world, we have a lot of mold and mildew problems, and you have to stay on top of it. Mm-hmm. Especially if you got basements, and uh, we have a lot of rain here too. And uh, so I was in the process of cleaning up, taking care of the mold and mildew and stuff like that. And it was really nice. But what I got taken off that was there was a big leader showed up. She was actually from Honduras. And I don't know, for some reason, he just didn't like Southerners. There was a couple of people that had this impression that we're all a bunch of ignorant, hillbillies, fat, overweight, you know, just president toward us right and i remember one time we were having a teaching now this is really when it started going real south for me mm-hmm. we were having a teaching and we're talking about in the in the scriptures it talks about uh you don't put new wine in old uh goat skins and what it's talking about the ancient way of how to make wine mm. like how the greeks the romans seemed the jews and all this stuff would make wine they would actually get the stuff and they would put it into goat skins mm-hmm. new ones and it would ferment. I don't know if you ever made wine or anything, but I never it have. ferments. <laughs> and, okay, but it ferments and all this stuff, and it actually expands. But if you have an old, dried-out goat skin, it'll burst. Mm-hmm. So you have to use a new one, mm-hmm. like a freshly killed one. And Marsha, of course, you know she doesn't understand any of that. Like I was talking to her, and she's like, yeah. So I went and got on the internet. Had a another individual. I'd never had any internet access, so I had another individual get on the internet for me because you had to have a coats. Everything in them is like not the, not a normal person go to the internet, even if there's open computer because everything has had passwords. So I went to uh, another person I had under had a password and I told him and he pulled up an article and actually showed how the ancient way to make him wine. And I took it to Marsha's house and I went and knocked on the door of her house because you know, she's either, if her car is there, she's there. Mm-hmm. If her car, God knows where she's at. But so I went and knocked on her door, and all of a sudden I hear running down the steps. And he's like red, sweaty, and all that stuff. I was like, oh, hey, Yosef, I'll just bring this to Marsha. And he goes, oh, oh, me and my wife were just, we're discussing some things with her upstairs. Oh, okay. Well, could you hand that to her? Oh, absolutely. And he takes it real quick and shuts the door. Mm-hmm. Well, I went to get some water at the in the kitchen. His wife was in the kitchen in the in the next building over. His wife wasn't upstairs. Right. It was just him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I didn't know about the affairs until after I left. Right. And I'm like, that's strange. And I'm working around the, the property, you know, I'm mowing grass, trimming hedges, you know, et cetera, that kind of stuff. And I kind of was like, that's weird. And only one person I ever saw come out of that house was him. Mm-hmm. 
it was almost close by it. And it wasn't like two days later, I was taken off the ground crew. Mm. And I was stuck back in the deli. And that's when everything changed for me. And that's when, like, I wasn't even allowed to, like, next thing I know, is like, well, Abadja, we feel like you have an evil spirit. I thought I had an evil spirit. I was trying to bring in some country club, southern thing to make our property look like a country club or a church because I'm too Christian. I was like, and, I mean, it got bad. And, and then me being me, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I'm still, I'm still reading scripture. I still believe in the Bible and all that stuff. Still to this day, just yeah. not Gene's version of it. Yeah. It just got worse. Next thing I know, I'm accused of flirting with young girls. Oh. They have a meeting where the children, they tell the parents they even let the children around me. And well, that's what got them. Now that's, that's right there. It's something that I found out later. And I, I gotta admit, the children actually, after I left, there were people actually reaching out to me and apologizing, so, and that's when I found out. Mm-hmm. And the children actually, I found out, and this and this is what almost brought me back in, because I struggled with going back in for about almost a year. Right. And it was the children that actually were the ones constantly praying for me. Mm-hmm. And begging, God, send Obadiah back, because the children all love me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like everybody was turning on me, and I could never figure out why. I'll never forget the last day I was there. No, it was the day right before I left. And uh, literally, I was in the deli. Well, this actually was going on for a month. I was in the deli. Well, Thomas, go work at the deli. Well, Bajit, go work at the deli. All right, go in the dish room. And here comes this other guy coming in there with his son. And he was super nice to me for the longest time. And he's like, okay, we're working here. I said, well, I, they got me in here. You too. They got me with you today. He's like, no, you're not. You're not working with us. I was like, oh, my God. Well, I was just like, what did I do? Hmm. Well, come to find out. I knocked on the door at the wrong time. <laughs> but I did. Right. Yeah. So your feeling <laughs> so, is that all of this was a repercussion for having knocked on the door and come across something that you weren't supposed to have seen. That's exactly what I caught something. I didn't even put it together until after I left. Right. You know, I wasn't thinking along that lines. And it took me the longest time to figure it out. So I find myself like a month, almost a month, just sitting on the steps in the back of the deli begging for something to do. Begging for something to do. And all they would say is, and it was all coming from that one man. He's like, well, well, you're not covered to do anything. They haven't told us to do anything. I guess you can just sit there or go back home. So I was just like, what do I do? And there was some times that some of the older men saw what were going on, and uh, but no way were they going to challenge Marsha and, you know, this upcoming up- of now apostle. Because Gene was the head apostle. Then you have other apostles underneath him. Yeah. This apostle that Marsha literally promoted in the gathering one time said, oh, he's an apostle of our father. He, our father has ordained him as apostle. And then eventually that last day, the day after Thanksgiving, I got down with the men hall. And I'll never forget one of the guys there, one of the head chef Shemaya. And he was also one of these guys. He was trying to build himself up to he's part of three court. He was caught up in his own righteousness and own power. And he looked at I looked at him and and I said, Shema, I said, listen, if you guys don't want me here, I'll go. I mean, I don't want to cause any more problems. I'll just leave. 
and we can leave that piece. And he literally slammed his head next to my head, his hand right next to my head. And I'm against the wall. He got right up my face and said, you can take your Jesus and leave. Ooh. And I just looked at him and I just knocked his hand out of the way and walked off. And I went to another leader and I looked at him and I said, I told him what happened. I said, oh, we know how you are, Abadja. I said, did you snap at him? Because we all know how you act and how what's really going on with you. We all know how, what you're doing. So once you come clean, I said, no, this is exactly what happened. I just I told him, I said, if you don't want me here, if it's just most problems, you can't send me anywhere else. I'll just leave and we'll just leave at peace. That's all I said. I said, I don't believe that. I, said, I swear on my own daughter. And I shouldn't have said, you know, I was emotional. And he said, oh, that's the dumbest thing I had. See, we've been talking about this. You don't even love your daughters. We don't want you. We're talking about this. You're not going to speak to your daughter no more. Yeah. Yep. I walked straight to a phone, called my parents, told them exactly what happened. They're like, come home, call Shamaya up on his cell phone. I said, all right, you win. Let's try to do this quietly. I'll get my stuff and let's go. <laughs> and they brought me off my parents' house. Uh-huh. I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, you're not going to do that. And it's the line crossing right there. And, but, you know, after all that was said and done, it wasn't a couple of days later. I got started getting phone calls from other leaders, you know, like, hey, let's come back, let's talk. And I said, guys, I'm just not ready to come back in. I, I said, I, I just, I don't want to get hammered on. I need some healing. But yeah, that lasted for a while. But then it just got to the point where it's after some more people I knew left and hear some more stories and. I think that last time, last, I went to the Yellow Deli last, was in February, I walked in, never saw this kid before. And he definitely, you could look at him, he had this shrunken face going on. He looked kind of like, you know, he probably lived on the streets for a little bit, kind of, you know, one of those ones of damage going on here. And he looks and he says, you're, you're the one that called Baji. I say, yes, that's me. And I really was thinking about going back at this time. I was working like seven days a week where I work at, and I was making really good money. I was easy to save up money. And uh, so I was like, okay. I said, well, I'm going to pay off all my debts, and I'm coming back. And I already made plans to come back. And I was going to Asheville, and then all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, and this kid walks up and starts like, you're Obadja, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, is this is on my heart today. It's like, you think you can come in here and act the way you do and flaunt your worldly to us and we're going to sit here and take i'm like i didn't say two words said, we all heard about you we know how you were a bully how you treated people and how you act and we don't appreciate you coming in here and flunking your world in front of us wow and he looked at me like this desert in the deli's like this is at night this is when i get off at you know 11 p.m this is at night and i'm just looking at like who the hell is this kid and it's about the second time this has happened and and head night i'm just like that's it. I just threw twenty dollars on the table. He walked away. I threw twenty dollars table. I just said two words. I just walked to my car, and it's like I left, and it's like a whole tire weight just take off my shoulder. I was like, I'm free. Yeah. I guess that's what I really needed to break free. <laughs> and then after that's when I suddenly got a hold of, and it wasn't shortly after that I got a hold of some old friends that have just left, and that's when I found out some more stuff. And I was, I was like, oh my god. So maybe this was, you know, I was struggling going back and forth. And maybe this is a good Lord saying, hey, don't go back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of us need a kick in the pants every once in a while. And so was it what that what that guy was saying to you in the deli that was kind of uh, showing you 
what sorts of things were being said behind your back by these people who you were actually considering returning to as a community? Yeah. I realized that if I go back, it's going to be 10 times worse. Yeah. And so it was really, uh, I guess, that conversation and then a couple of conversations afterwards with some other former members that solidified in your Mm -hmm. mind that it wasn't a community that you really wanted to go back to at all. No, it wasn't. And to be honestly... I started, I'm doing better now than I ever did. Yeah, cool. I actually have a job making a lot more money than I ever did. My relationship with my parents is fantastic. Great. Um, me, my, me and my ex-wife get along pretty good. Yeah, good. And uh, my daughter. So my life is actually, as a positive note, I would say I wouldn't reckon I would not do it again. Mm-hmm. But after going through the experience, I say I did grow maturity wise Mm -hmm. and calm down a lot and get more focused on my life and how to interact with people better like even when i work at now the conflicts and stuff going on and people blah 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 and i'm just i just totally brush it off like it doesn't exist like thomas does that not bother it's like no you could join a cult for two and a half years you'll be fine (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't bother you no more (laughs) because like i said it does just right down the road so it's kind of hard to hide where I was at. Right. <laughs> Everybody knows you in this small town. <laughs> well, and I honestly think a lot of the problems with, like, people don't realize how widespread this problem is because a lot of people are too ashamed to talk about it. And I don't think yeah. people should be ashamed for having ended up in a situation like that. I think that it is a, something any of us could easily find ourselves in the mix Absolutely. With. Yeah. I'm sure if we all sit back and examine our own lives at some point in our time in life, well, if you're old enough, then you would look back. There's a very vulnerable point in your time that you more likely would have joined us. Mm-hmm. Just some of us end up getting hit at that time. Yeah, you, you just know, it, happen to come across the, the group that turns out to be a cult at that vulnerable point in your life. That's right. Yeah, because we're all looking for answers. We're all looking. The human Humans always want the truth. Mm-hmm. We're always looking for it. Mm-hmm. And it's here's a, here's the thing is that even in these cults, and it, you know, if you want to call, you know, these other groups out there, but if you dig deep enough, there's always a bit of truth in there. Mm-hmm. And humans have a tendency to go for that. We'll mm-hmm. cling on to it, mm-hmm. even if it's surrounded by lies, lies everywhere. Humans always go after the truth eventually. Mm-hmm. And but you get caught up in the lies. It's kind of like a a trap. <laughs> Have you ever heard the analogy? I actually heard this one in the tribes. Um, how to catch a monkey? I'm not sure. Okay. You get something shiny. Uh-huh. And then you put it in a box. Now, the monkey can get its hand in there, but when it fists it up, it can't get it out. Uh-huh. It doesn't want to let go hold that shiny thing. Uh-huh. You see? So, the truth is the shiny thing. Yeah. We grab a hold of it. We don't want to let go because it's shiny and it's appealing to us, but it's a trap. Because we can't get our hand out of the box. Until you let go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that that's, uh, I think that's quite a, a good note to, to finish up on. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention before we finish up? Oh, let's see. Well, well one thing is, is with the tries right now, they're losing so many people. Do you think this is because of the new leadership situation? Yeah, this is new leadership. And... Truth is, if it's not built on a solid rock, a storm comes and it gets washed away. Mm-hmm. You know, it just 
it can withstand time. Groups like this have come and gone for a long time. Yeah. So I feel that eventually, you give it another couple decades, they'll be out of Australia. There'll probably be a trace of them in the United States somewhere, but they're eventually just going to fade away. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see what happens. Thomas had one more thing he wanted to say. I like to find Kashab because he left. So <laughs> he's a nice guy. So Kashab, if you hear this podcast, it's Thomas Obadja. See if you can get in touch with me. I'm on Facebook, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see if we can track him down for you. <laughs> yeah, he's a nice guy. My thanks to Thomas Parsons for sharing his story with me for this episode. You can access early and ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my book, Do As I Say. That link's in the show notes too. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was produced by me, Sarah Steele, and music was by Joe Gould. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for season six of the show. If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their range of headphones and turntables and mics that'll make your remote working setup on point. For every episode this season, a lucky listener will win a pair of ATH-SQ1TW wireless earbuds. Head to www.ltaspod.com win to enter. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support with or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention at iasp.info. Catch you again next episode.